0: Okay, so there are daddies, right? Real men. They keep the lights on. They keep the refrigerator packed. They keep hope alive. They even know who their kids' friends are. And it turns out that these people, these real daddies, they don't even have to share the same blood as the child. They don't have to share the same name. They don't have to share the same species. Whoever it is that is handling the business of being the daddy, it turns out to be the daddy is crazy on the next snap judgment from prx and npr big papa stories about those who take care of business and those who fall short snap judgment it's that left that right jump or don't storytelling with a beat right after the break See, my parents had somewhere to go, right? Some event or something, and we were supposed to go stay at the associate pastor's place. Cool, because they had a pool and kids the same age as me and my brother, and the mister was a real nice man, always had a big laugh, was always steady sliding coins into your hands. I-, I told my friend one day that you are so lucky because your daddy is so nice. So we went over there. And just like expected, the good times roll. Tire swings, cannonball splashing, Red Rover, Red Rover, send misting them over. And just when the good times hit fifth gear, I hear a whistle. And Mr.'s like, all right, come on in, this time. And my little friends get out of the pool, lickety-split in a hurry, and I follow them in line right by the sliding glass door at the back of the house. And I'm thinking milk and cookies, maybe tuna fish sandwiches, And then, mister comes out holding a thick leather belt. What? All right, now seeing how y'all are new here and don't know the rules, I'm gonna have to explain them to you. See, we all do wrong each and every day. And when you do wrong, you gotta pay. Even if I don't see, the Lord sees, the Lord knows. So in our house, at four o'clock, it's whipping time. What you talking about? At four o'clock, everyone gets a whipping. But but, but I didn't even do nothing. Of course you did something. Everybody's a sinner. And I start hollering, telling them I don't want no, but I was just swimming in the pool and not sinning. And didn't nobody see me sinning either. And if they say they saw me sinning, they ain't doing nothing but lying and lying on me. But one by one, my little friends went into the house and I can hear the belt smacking down on the butts. Hell no. And then mister comes out looking for me, looking for me. And he says, you're going to have to ask my parents about the beating first. and He'll find out and get the all clear for next time but I had already started my escape. Digging a hole underneath the picnic table, I didn't come out until my daddy got there. I ran to him like a shot from a cannon. Never been so happy to see Pops in all my life. I said, Dad, there's some crazy stuff going on up in here. We got to go. And he laughed and said he's happy to see me too, but I won't let him put me down. No, 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 no. I just keep hugging on to him, hugging as hard as I can. so glad that he's my daddy and Mr. is somebody else's. Today, on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present Big Papa, stories about daddies that handled their business, daddies that handle somebody else's business, and daddies we think could do a whole lot better. My name is Glenn Washington. Get ready, hold on tight, because you're listening to Snap Judgment. So we're kicking it off today with a story from SNAP's own Pat City miller about all the good things that can happen when a dad takes his young little boy to the woods.
1: When I was nine, my dad and a couple of the other dads from the neighborhood had decided to plan a backpacking trip for Father's Day. So all the dads would take all their sons, and we would all hike out together to the Sierra Mountains and spend a few days in the woods. I hadn't done much camping as a kid, so I was really excited. And I didn't really know how to prepare, so the first place I looked was the TV. I turned on the sports channel, and there was a big fishing tournament on. If you get a big one on in there, mm-hmm. you'll keep know, one... these guys were catching these big old fish, and when the fish were too big to pull in on the line because it would snap, they would let the fish swim real close to the boat, and then start rubbing their bellies. Cause I guess on the bellies of the fish is where their like their love parts are. And so the fish would get like aroused, you know, hypnotized, sedated, and kind of turn to jelly. Then they would pull them up. Boom. The next day, all the dads and all the sons take off into the mountains. We hike for a day, camp out, and they hike for another day, and we reach this little lake and it's beautiful. It's clean, crisp air There's trees all around the lake, all the way to the waterline. There's nobody else out there but us. And as the sun starts to set, there's all these fish in the lake and they're jumping like crazy. Everywhere you look in the lake, there's fish jumping. And we're all excited, like, oh my gosh, look at all these fish. But nobody had brought poles. I wake up the next morning. I'm a nine-year-old kid. I'm out in the middle of nowhere and there's nothing to do. So I decide to go out and explore. I walk around the lake and I see this little river. I sit down on the bank of the river, all these fish are swimming through it. So I jump in the water, and it's only a few feet deep, and I'm trying to grab them, and they're shooting right past me, going through my legs, right around me, slipping through my fingers. And I figure, well, I gotta stop them. So I'm walking through the river, I'm picking up all these big rocks and broken branches from the riverbed, and I start building a little dam. And the fish swim up to the dam, and then they stop. But as soon as I try to grab them, they dart off back to the lake. So I gather more rocks and more branches and go upstream and construct a second dam. But this time, I leave a little hole for the fish to swim through. And it works. The fish are swimming through the first dam, and then they get stopped by the second dam. And I put a rock over the hole so they can't get out. I got a pool full of fish, but they're scared of me and hiding over in this one shady spot over on the riverbank. So I climb out, I crawl down on my belly, and I sneak up to the edge of the riverbank, right to where they're all hiding. I lower my hand into the water real slow and just leave it there. Soon enough, one of the fishes comes over to investigate. Swims up, swims around my hand, and when it gives my finger a little nibble... I give it a little stroke on the belly, and the fish swims away. But it's intrigued by my hand. Little time passes, and it comes back up. So I give it another little rub, and it's getting real comfortable with my hand. And I'm rubbing the side of its belly so it'll follow my hand out of its hiding place. Come on, fish, it's nice and safe. You can do it. Come on. I give it another little rub, another little rub, and then toss it out of the river. And I jump up, the fish is flopping around all over the place, I'm like, oh my god! One of the other sons runs down, and he's like, what happened? I said, man, I just caught a fish in my hand! And the fish is flopping around, and he can't believe it, so I said, go back to camp and get me something to put him in. So he comes back with a bag, I crawl back up on my belly, come back up to where they're hiding, stick my hand in, another fish comes out to inspect, give it a little rub, give it another little rub. There it goes, that one's out. And as I'm tossing him up, three, four, five, he's bagging him, six, seven, eight. And pretty soon, we had enough fish to feed everybody. We walk back up to the camp with a bag full of fish and all the dads are excited and cheering and they can't believe it, especially after I told them how I did it. They start making a fire. I pass the fish off to my dad, he pats me on the back And him and the rest of the guys gut them, clean them up, and cook them. And we all ate fish for Father's Day.
0: That was Pat Masiti Miller. Please keep that man away from the fish and chips. But you see, Papa, you see how those trips to nature pay off. Your kids, they will surprise you. Now, one of the things a father does is show a boy how to be a man. Hopefully, he doesn't have to start at age 12. Victor was but 12 years old. A tall, lanky, black kid from rural Tennessee liked to play basketball, hang out with his friends. But then one day, he got a call from the principal's office. And his world was about to be turned upside down forever.
2: A meeting was called between the principal, the school counselor was there, my parents were there. Sat me down and asked me, what would I think about going to college?
0: Twelve years old, and they ask you about going to college because of the fact that you're a math prodigy.
2: Right. I took the SATs. I got 800 on the math part.
0: What is that? What is 800? It's
2: a perfect score. What'd you say? I said absolutely not. I didn't want any part of that. I already felt like an outsider. I knew it was going to be much worse in a college situation. Like as soon as we got home, they told me this is what I was going to do that it wasn't going to be a choice.
0: You left home at 12?
2: Left home at 12.
0: How did that make you feel?
2: Terrible. I just felt they were abdicating their parental responsibility.
0: This is one of the biggest decisions in your life, and you didn't make it.
2: And I I regret that.
0: Have you ever lived at home since then?
2: I've never been home for more than a weekend since. When you get to Big City College,
0: you are in a regular dormitory?
2: In a regular dormitory.
0: And you have special rules, it for just for you?
2: Just for me, yeah.
0: So everybody else is running around doing what college kids do? Oh, yeah.
2: Having keg parties, staying out all night. If you did
0: break the rules, if you came back at 10.30, 10.45, what would be the consequence of that infraction?
2: we'd have to go to a room and study for maybe three hours. Surely you've had to have done this once or twice. Oh, by all means, absolutely. For me, just to kind of test the boundaries. Did you have a job? I did have a job. I worked for the government doing computer programming. Create a code, basically.
0: Did you have any sort of person that you could go to that could help you deal with a lot of these challenges you were facing?
2: I did. There was a priest. Who took me under his wing and became a father figure? I have to say, I considered him uh, like a dad.
0: This is um, an older white guy.
2: That's right. You are a young black kid. That's right. Tell me about that relationship. How did it grow? He was very, very easy to talk to. He he wasn't preachy. Like I was afraid to get too close to him because I'm thinking, okay, he's going to try to turn me into Catholic and. I didn't go to church or or anything. Was
0: there any time that you thought i disappointed him?
2: Oh yeah. I remember being involved with a bunch of kids who vandalized one of the school buses. I was there and was caught. And he knew it. And he, he knew about it. There was a disciplinary hearing. He actually came and spoke on my behalf.
0: Not bad having a priest speak for you, but after the hearing, You've got to talk to him.
2: Right. What'd you say? I remember crying. I remember crying. And the only reason why I, I cried because of the expression on his face about it. And he w- didn't say anything. He didn't have to. I, I, I felt ashamed. I mean, yeah, I was involved in that. I didn't really feel about that bad about what I did. <laughs> but <laughs> I felt putting him, a person I respected more than any other, in a position felt it reflected poorly on him.
0: What happened to the priest?
2: Um, I would go visit him like two or three times a year. I would visit him more than I would visit my own family. About nine years ago, he died, had a heart attack. It was kind of sudden, too. I tell people it was the worst day of my life. You feel that
0: your time there would have turned out a lot worse for you had it not been for the impact
2: of this priest? I believe it would have been impossible. I don't believe I would have made it through period. It kind of restored my faith in people, because having dealt with parents who I felt let me down, this individual restored my faith in humanity.
0: Thank you, Victor, for sharing your story with the snap. It was produced by the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Now you are listening to Snap Judgment, the big papa episode. We're talking to daddies. We're talking about daddies. We're exploring what it means to be a daddy today. Don't go anywhere. We've got stories you are not going to believe. Storytelling with a beat. Snap Judgment. We'll be right back in a moment. (laughs) Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. Today, we're exploring the terms of fatherhood, and this fatherhood thing is a big word, friends. Lots of roles caregiver, protector, teacher, bank accountant. Ginny Arsenault brings Snap a story from Haiti about a man who sees a chance to make a difference. <laughs>
3: I met Richard Roy in Anche, an unremarkable little city in central Haiti. Richard's from Montreal. He's been volunteering in Haiti off and on for 10 years, ever since he retired. Last November, he went to a meeting in a small town called Las Caobas. That's when he noticed a little boy standing in the street.
4: He was just looking at me. He looked at me. And I looked at him, not paying too much attention, but I went to another place, and The little boy was there again. Same little boy, same dirty feet and old shoes all busted up.
3: The meeting was postponed, so Richard went to grab some coffee across town. And there was the little boy, again.
4: There was a little boy standing there again. That's odd, you know, three times. It's like the old man upstairs, the old man upstairs, my God, anyways. Maybe he's telling me something.
3: He asked his driver, Benson, about the little boy.
4: I said, who's that little boy? He says, a coco rat. I said, a what? They're rats living off the street. No family at all. They'll steal if they need some clothing. They'll beg, they'll do anything. They're treated less than a dog.
3: So Richard started talking to the little boy.
4: So, of course, waiting for my coffee, I had a little boy, I says, what's his name? He says, Willie. Ask father, mother, no. Brother, no. Sister, see?
3: Yeah, yeah. You see, not too long before Richard met Willie, he had a vision in the middle of the night.
4: I got awakened up during the night. Somebody was telling me, Richard, Richard, Richard. And there was nobody in the room. I swear to God, there was nobody in that room. And I had not been drinking, and I don't do drugs. I figured it must be the old man upstairs. He says, I gave you all the qualities you have, all the gifts, two eyes, two ears, a mouth, a nose. You can do anything. Do something with what I've given you. He says, that's what I want. It's the craziest, wildest thing that ever happened to me. I said, i got to do something about that little kid. And the next day I says, what about the coconut? Because your old man upstairs is going to say, Richard, I send you three times a little boy. And what do you do? You have your coffee and you like the rest. You don't want to hear about it. You don't want to see that. You don't want to know nothing about it.
3: Richard decided he was going to take care of the kids, whatever it took. His driver Benson said they didn't even have last names or ID cards.
4: And people were telling me, well, first of all, they haven't got a card. You can't get any medical attention if you don't have a card. You cannot go to school if you haven't got a card. So you need an ID card. They're not registered nowhere. They got no family name. So I was asking people around, say, well, what do we do family name?
3: Richard told his driver Benson to get Willie and his sister legal ID cards and list Richard's name as the father. A friend warned him not to.
4: Well, he says, don't ever put your name on it because you'll be responsible for these kids. So that got me troubled trouble again. I said, well, (laughs) put my name down. So the little boy is Willie Roy and Geraldine Roy. Father, Richard Roy. I'm the father.
3: Willie and Geraldine Roy. Done.
4: And they say, why don't you apply to bring to Canada with you? No. I'm 68 years old. I live in an apartment by myself. What am I going to do with a 9-year-old boy and a 6-year-old little girl?
3: Richard says his job is to make sure the kids are full and clothed and educated.
4: I create myself a moral obligation to tend for these kids and make sure that they're well taken care of. Until the old man pulls a plug on me.
3: So, with Benson's help, Richard arranged to pay 50 bucks a month, plus school fees and money for clothes, to a woman who's friends with Benson. She would care for the children.
4: It was agreed. So now they're in school, they have a uniform, they got new shoes. Now the little girl, we bought her some of these fancy frill socks there, she's all happy about that. I'd like to see more of that if it was possible. I'll just be the financial father. They have no other father. When I kick the bucket the old man's gonna tell me what I what, what have you done with what I've given you that's my answer it's like to find my own Garden of Eden I have to pay the price for all these things but I'm, I'm paying the price and I have a good deal the price I'm paying
3: after Richard told me his story he went home to Montreal I headed out to find the kids to see how they felt about their father from the north Richard's driver Benson is from Las Cabas. he agreed to take me there to meet the kids But when we got there, things got complicated. Benson introduced me to two kids with different names and different ages than the ones Richard had spoken of. The girl didn't have frilly socks. Her shoe was broken. The kids didn't know anything about a father from Canada. Then Benson told me Richard's money had run out and the kids didn't have any food to eat the next day. His cousin chimed in, insisting the kids weren't getting enough money. Where were Willie and Gerald Yen? When I got home to the United States, I called Richard and told him what I'd found. Richard was shocked.
4: Wow, what a story. You're showing me another side that I never, maybe I didn't want to see. Maybe I was just being put on. Maybe I just a good sucker
3: maybe without being there, without managing the money himself, even being a financial father was difficult.
4: Telling you that the kids will not eat tomorrow? That's as annoying to my ears. Maybe I'm a little naive, and, but I don't want to change this naivety. Believing in people and mankind makes things more interesting, I guess. It's my money, my, my way of paying back uh, whatever I've got more than anybody else. And if it does help people, good.
0: That story was brought to us by Ginny Arsenault with help from the International Reporting Project. Big thanks as well to Shay Shackelford, for assisting with the production on the story. And now, I am jealous of our next guest. You are going to be jealous as well because Sarah Neal, she found something very, very special letters in time to her. Snap judgment.
5: This is how I knew my grandfather growing up. His left arm was paralyzed from having polio when he was six. He always carried chewing gum in his shirt pocket. He wore pressed trousers every day. And he always called me Sally. He died in 1989 and that's all I managed to remember about him. Until my mom started finding messages that he left behind.
6: Good morning, Sally. This is your maternal grandfather speaking to you this morning, Hubert Whipple. Now, if you think it's easy, you ought to sit down with one of these microphones sometime and try talking to a two-year-old girl that is present.
5: I think he expected my mom to find the tapes sooner, maybe when I was in college, and certainly before I got married.
6: There are advantages in marrying a poor, ambitious boy who will make a success and be a self-made man. That's a pretty good kind. There are also some advantages to marrying a young fellow that can go in business with his dad or uncle and eventually inherit a million dollars.
5: According to my grandfather, he and my grandmother fought quite a bit when they first got married. So to stop arguing, they decided to alternate being the boss.
6: It was a lot of fun, young married couple. If I got a little bit um, teed off with Louise, I could tell her to go over and stand in the corner for five minutes. Oh, that was fun. (laughs) But you must wait until the next week.
5: (laughs) I didn't even know that my grandfather, who was always telling me each year was his last, had a sense of humor. But there it is, recorded for the ages. Think about it. If you really loved your granddaughter, but she was too little to understand who you were, or to understand the advice you had to give, what would you do?
6: Is anybody still listening? Everybody still listening? Hold up your hand. <laughs> anyway, here's best wishes to you. And uh, don't be surprised if you don't agree with everything I say. I didn't say what I had uh, in mind with the idea that it was right. Draw your own conclusions, make your own decisions. And with that in mind, I think I'll say good afternoon.
0: Okay, this is special. We're going to bob and weave on this one. This is our Snap Judgment Big Papa episode. Paul and his wife, they already had two young sons. And they thought their life was complete. But then, then, a young orphan
7: washed up in their arms. Literally. I'm Paul Seeswerder. I'm a recent retiree from the New York Aquarium. And prior to that, I was curator at the New England Aquarium in Boston, where I worked with seals. <laughs> I enjoyed working with seals because they're very interesting animals. Well, absolutely they're cute, particularly harbor seals. Sometimes I was actually able to bring my work home with me. And we're going down memory lane here. This was in 1978. One of my jobs was to pick up injured or debilitated seals. We had a number of seals that had washed up on the beach as infants, and we were kind of overwhelmed at the aquarium and caring for them. They were very demanding because just like human infants, you have to make sure that they get regular feedings into the night. So we would bring them home with us. They're a little ball of blubber. It was manageable to pick them up, put them into a Rubbermaid barrel, sit them on the seat next to me, drive home. The night that I happened to bring it home was my son's 10th birthday. And all the neighborhood kids came in and were able to stick their heads into the back hall and see this baby seal. This was way better than renting a clown for the birthday. Cecil, I think my wife made that name up.
8: Uh, yes, my name is Candy Seaswater.
7: Somehow or other, this little poem came up. Um, it's Cecil the Seal, who came from the sea, who lives with the Seaswarders just like me.
8: Oh, well, my impression was that that would be for the day. And then he informed me, it's going to be staying here with us for a while. And I was like, oh, okay. But I was kind of taken aback. I was like, how do you take care of a seal? Soon enough, he trained me. There was a a certain mixture of powder and a certain formula. Cottage cheese and heavy cream. She was able to be in the bathtub at night. She would wake up during the night and bark as a seal, as they do. And I would know it was time for her feedings. In the mornings, I would take her out of the tub. She would flop around after me from room to room as I was doing my chores and follow me just like a dog would. I would have her over my shoulder and burping after feedings or during feedings. Uh. Lots of times in the bathtub, she would get hiccups. Flop up and down in the bathtub and go, ah! and just flop, ah! flop, <laughs> oh, it was precious. Cecil went through A little mishap with her eye and us as parents, we were just as we would be with our children, really, really upset.
7: As the vet was examining Cecil, which was nothing new for me because I was part of the crew that would help hold the seals down. I lost my professionalism. (laughs) I was like, well, be careful. So they, they cleared me out of the room and said,
8: I could stay. <laughs> they let the mother stay. <laughs> you I you leave, you're in the way here. Yeah. Cecil was one of the family. Certainly was part of the family. It was It was very, very sad when we knew that she had to go back to the aquarium. Oh, it was heartbreaking. I'm, I'm uh, thinking about it now and filling up. And uh, it was like giving it up to adoptive parents because... They, I felt that we were her parents, and and our sons were her brothers. But knowing that she was going to be there and I could visit her at any time, because I would go in and meet Paul for lunch as our sons were in school, and I would call her and she would come right out and look at me, and she knew me.
7: There are some famous seals that also were raised up by humans. Hoover, when he came into adulthood, he started to speak human language. He would actually say with a New England accent, Hey, Hoover, get out of here. Those words fortunately were recorded. Just
8: like that. When she did have her first child, I really didn't know about it. I was like, well, I didn't even know she was dating. <laughs> and then when I found out that she was pregnant with one of Hoover's babies, and I said, okay, he talked her into it. <laughs> I was very proud, so was Paul.
7: I think she had about a 35 or so year life, which is uh, pretty typical for a long-lived seal. And um, I forget how many offspring she had. Three or four, they grew up at the aquarium. Yeah,
8: that our grandchildren are there. <laughs> she, she was and will always be our, our baby.
0: Now you're not gonna believe this, Snappers, but one of Hoover and Cecil's grandchildren, Chuck, is learning how to talk as well. She can even say, How are you? And you're saying to yourself, Glen, Glenn, and Glenn, Glen, Glen, there's no such thing as a talking seal. <laughs> That's what I thought, but I'm not kidding. Seals can talk. Look it up on the Googler. That story was produced by our own Stephanie Fu. And when we return, we are going back in time to write an injustice done to a young girl, Snap Judgment. Storytelling with a beat. <laughs> Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Big Papa episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and today we're featuring all sorts of stories about that special person, some called dad. And ladies and gentlemen, here's a tip. A little early notice from your Uncle Glenn. I offer this as a public service from the Snap Judgment. If you have a baby, any baby, and you decide not to tell them who their father
9: is, someday, someday,
0: they're going to ask
9: So I didn't know my dad growing up. When I was maybe seven or eight, I think I started asking my mom who my dad was. And she told me that she didn't know. And I just took it for granted. I didn't grow up with a dad, so I always sort of assumed that I was a fatherless child. Jump ahead. I'm 22 years old, and, and I call her up one day to tell her that I am going to be running the kitchen at this retreat center where I live. She's a chef. So I called her up to tell her that, hey, cooking runs in the family. (laughs) At which point she says to me, you know, that's not all that runs in the family. You're a lot like your father. I was taken aback, jaw dropped. I asked her what she meant and she said, well, now that I see who you are, I know who your dad is. Wow, a little nugget of who I am. I took the information and I just kind of sat with it for a few months, and then this one day it was time. I got to find my dad. I was compelled, so I called my mom, and she gave me his name. And she said the only other thing I know about your dad is that he was studying with a teacher named Trungpa Rinpoche when I last saw him. Trungpa Rinpoche is a Tibetan teacher, and had founded a college. I called and a woman picked up the phone and she asked me what I was calling for. And I tried to sum it up as best as I could. I'm calling, I'm looking for my dad. He was a student of Trungpa Rinpoche's. She said to me, what's your dad's name? And I told her and she said, oh, I know him, which just floored me. She gives me my dad's phone number. I was really scared and I just, Put myself aside, like on automatic pilot. I would think I was disembodied, but I had enough control to dial <laughs> and put the receiver to my ear. It rang a couple of times, and he picked up the phone.
10: The phone rings, and I pick up the phone, and,
9: and I heard his voice, and I heard myself in his voice. It was so wild.
10: This is very sweet, vulnerable voice saying, "Hello, is Ken there?"
9: I'm sure that my voice was shaking when I talked to him.
10: I said, "Who is this?"
9: And I said, "This is Tracy." I
10: said, "Well, Tracy, how could I help you?" There was this long gap, and then she said, "You're my father. You're my father."
9: Yeah, I'm your daughter. I'm your daughter. And he said, "Oh, Tracy, Tracy." <laughs>
10: And it was such a rush from the tip of my toes to the top of my head. Everything came kind of into sharp focus. And
9: I had no idea what his response was going to be. It was so gentle and receptive.
10: It was tender. It was sad. And it was very happy.
9: And he was very happy. He was. I was really pleased. It was the best response he could have given me. We talked for quite a while, downloaded who we are and where we've been, and...
10: And somehow time just collapsed, and that whole 22-year period was a fleeting moment, and we were reunited.
9: So we wrote to each other, sent each other photographs of ourselves, and...
10: It was almost spooky when she wrote me a letter and her handwriting looked very much like mine. And I
9: was shocked to see how similar our style of language. It was quite amazing.
10: And our interests were very much alike. It was like, Whoa.
9: I thought that I was a perfect argument for nature versus nurture.
10: (laughs) Nature wins. Nature trumps. There's no doubt in my mind.
9: And I get to fill in some of the details of how my mother and father met, as well as how it came to pass that I didn't know him growing up. My dad was pretty actively seeking himself as a young man.
10: I was at the time living in Los Angeles. Running
9: a yoga center in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, my mom shows up at the yoga center.
10: Uh, there was a woman, a young woman.
9: And finds out that my dad was going to be driving across the country. From
10: L.A. to New York.
9: And they arrange that she's going to get a lift to go visit her family.
10: She asked if she could join myself driving across.
9: And the story goes,
10: We're on our way to nowhere
9: that somewhere along the lines, maybe in Utah or somewhere in the middle of the country, outdoors, under the stars, a beautiful night, they sleep together. They have one night together.
11: We
10: make love. And we got to the east coast afterwards. She went on her way, I went my way.
9: They both go their separate ways before either of them know that she's pregnant. She discovers she's pregnant decides she's going to go to a little island in the Balearic Ocean, and she gives birth there. And she gets back to the U.S., and she looks up my dad.
10: I said, hi, I haven't heard from you for a year. She says, well, guess what? I gave birth to your daughter. I said, what? I have a daughter? I didn't even know you were pregnant. Why didn't you call me? She said, well, I was going to Spain, and I thought it would be too much of a hassle all around. and
9: Needless to say, it was a little bit shocking for him and they realized that their lives are moving in two very different directions.
10: She said, you know, I have a boyfriend now, I have a life, you have a life, and you don't have to be the father, you don't have to be the godfather. Maybe it's best if we made believe this never happened.
9: And it would just be more simple for everyone if they don't stay in contact.
10: It seemed to be convenient. What we never considered was Tracy's mind, what Tracy might think as an individual as she got older.
9: A couple months after we spoke on the phone for the first time, we meet at the airport and uh, there was no question that we were looking at family. We embraced. We were just overwhelmed getting to meet each other for the first time.
10: I've never felt then or since then that she was angry with me, that I didn't raise her. To have gone through what I went through with Tracy, and not to be rejected, but for that person to reach out to me, which she did find me, opened my heart so much.
9: Decided that it was the perfect opportunity. I moved in with my dad.
10: And we we wound up living together.
9: Yeah, it was a really unique experience. and
10: There was a whole development of family. I had my dad, her grandfather, move in.
9: We got to know each other. We got to spend time together. and
10: There was nurturing that happened when she was in her 20s and on, and we took off from that and developed a very close-knit relationship.
9: I love him dearly. It's fun. We have a lot of fun together.
10: Now she is on the verge of having a baby.
9: I'm 39, and I'm having my first baby. And...
10: Lo and behold... I'm a grandfather then to her child.
9: He'll fly out after the baby's born.
10: And the continuity and the blessings keep going if you open your heart.
12: Since you don't have to walk a plane The game is rigged Go figure out Slash your taint, And your flagship sank So we're taking All our Miss to the bank So just don't downfall, Get through the bank Cause we're taking our, our Miss to the We're taking our, our to the, And we're taking our
0: You got lucky, baby. Really, really lucky. Take some of that love and spread it on that grandchild lucky man. Many thanks to Tracy for that story. It was produced by our own Rita Danders. Now, if you want to share your story with a snap, you know where to go. Snapjudgment.org. But sometimes... We've got to take it to the streets. We've got to go out there and find out what's on people's minds. And for the Big Papa episode, we had to go out and say, look at here. What advice did your daddy give you? What advice changed your world? You know that daddy gave advice. What was it? We sent our own Stephanie Fu and Natalia Yeager out to find out.
11: Snap Judgment asks you.
4: What, 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 what was the best lesson your father ever taught you?
8: One thing I learned from my dad is do unto others that you have them do unto you.
4: Finish my degree. That was his best advice.
8: Hard work pays.
12: If I wanted to be successful in life, I should surround myself with successful people. So no matter what, don't give up. Keep pushing to be what all that I can be. Uh,
1: it's easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. When you hit somebody, it's important to just hit with the two front knuckles. Never be inebriated when making difficult decisions.
9: <laughs> don't use drugs, because it ends you up
12: in prison. My dad? Yeah. One Absolutely list. nothing. What not to be like.
9: How to handle money. Money doesn't matter 10 minutes after you're dead. I
8: don't know, my daddy always said, take care of yourself so you don't have to depend on anybody. But a man always take care of his family.
6: Marry a rich woman.
8: My
9: dad told me that it's really important to give back to your community.
5: Treat other people the way you want to be treated. Treat other people decently. Be true to yourself and your values.
8: You must. So, there are some things that you must do.
5: The best piece of advice that my dad gave me was to find the thing that made me happy and to pursue it. He loved me.
4: <laughs> I love you, dad. Daddy. 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 Daddy.
10: That was the
0: heart of the city, the beat of the people. Thank you, Stephanie Fu and Natalia Yeager. And now, 40 years ago, Alan Sussman hitchhiked through India, Afghanistan, and Nepal before climbing his way to a mountaintop temple called Tiboche Monastery on the trail to Everest Base Camp. And yes, he is one of those type of fellas. Last year, he asked his daughter, Snap Judgment producer Anna Sussman, to make the same trek with him one last time. We first aired this story on a Quest episode, but we're bringing it to you one more time today because this man is the real Big Papa.
11: My dad and I met up in Kathmandu, and the next morning we took a tiny twin-engine prop plane to a village called Lukla. It's about halfway up the 100-mile trail to the Everest base camp. We're at about, landed at about 9,000 feet. There's about 200 Sherpas here waiting behind a barbed wire fence, hoping to get work carrying people's bags up. But there's a ton of tourists and trekkers. 500 tourists fly in here every day now. When my dad first did this hike, there weren't really any other trekkers just expedition groups trying to summit Everest.
12: 40 years ago, uh, you didn't know if a plane was coming. There was no radio communication. You would hear the plane coming, the sound of the engine, and then you would all of a sudden hear the sound of the engine fade away, meaning that the plane had to go back to Kathmandu because it couldn't land in Lukla, and you had no idea when another plane on another day would be coming.
11: We started walking, mostly uphill, through villages and past yak trains. My dad walks slowly with a little wooden cane. He carries a tiny leather satchel instead of a backpack, and he's constantly clearing his throat because he has a damaged esophagus. He takes a big hike almost every year, but when he asked me to walk the Everest Trail with him, he said, I think it may be our last chance. We stop in stone guest houses, where Sherpas teach trekkers folk songs. And we order lentils and potatoes and fried bread. This was not the scene when my dad first came here.
12: And, and in fact, there were no places to stay either. So uh, they, they did have a few tents, and I happened to run into the Argentinian ec- Everest expedition, which had failed in its attempt to climb Mount Everest. This year... Yeah, of course, there are many, many, many more Western tourists on the Everest trek.
11: As we climb higher towards our goal, the mountainside monastery, the weather is getting worse. It's cloudy and foggy and cold. My dad's not feeling well, and we can't see any mountains. It's hard to pretend we're not disappointed as we climb through the fog. We arrive at the monastery after dark, Drink some hot lemon tea and hope in the morning the clouds will clear. It's 6 a.m. Tengboche Monastery. It's hard to tell, but it looks like it's still cloudy. We get no views. I climb out of the sleeping bag. It's freezing. And walk up to the monastery. The monks will be praying, trying to meditate on what lesson I'm supposed to learn here. I'm sure it's supposed to be something about the
6: journey.
11: Okay, Dad, what do you do when you fly 26 hours, hike six days for a view of Mount Everest, and you get there and it's fogged in?
12: It's a disappointment, but the journey is still unlike any other journey on the earth. And, and sometimes there's a reward at the end of the journey and sometimes it's just the journey.
11: And then as we sat on that ridge coming to terms with missing out on our Everest, the clouds began to break apart.
12: Whoa, look at those. Oh, it's gorgeous. What happened? The gods have smiled upon <laughs> us. The veil lifted, and the mountains are appearing and peeking through and and it's absolutely thrilling and gorgeous. Do you
6: think
11: that's because you passed the test, and the mountain gods knew you got it?
12: No. <laughs>
0: Friends, remember, if you are grateful for your father this weekend, the clouds would part for you as well. Thanks again to Anna Sussman and her father, Alan Sussman, for sharing their story with us. Okay, all right. We're getting near the end of our run, but do not be sad. Don't be blue. Why? Because Snap is everywhere. Look us up right now on the Facebook, the Twitter. We've got short films, pictures, pictures full episodes waiting ready right there for your listening pleasure snapjudgment.org now snap was produced by myself but never alone never ever alone please make some noise for the uber producer Mr. Mark Ristich Anna who's your daddy Sussman Rita father figures Daniel Stephanie crazy daddy fool Will Papa Don't Preach Urbina and Mitzi daddy Dearest Mom. that's snap production crew Pat Lassini Miller, Renzo Gorio, and Natalia Yeager. Now, have you ever been playing a game of softball and taking a fast one right to the head? Pow! Now Now that hurts. And if you're wondering who to call, I suggest you don't start with the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. In fact, if I had to think of my top three choices of whom to call, they'd all be in the medical profession. Nevertheless, many thanks to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. PRX, the public radio exchange, and though this is not the news, it is certainly not the news. In fact, you could go camping in the woods with your pop and hear all sorts of rustling in the night that doesn't sound like a bear, doesn't sound like a wolf. You could give chase top speed only to discover you are chasing a feral man raised with only the animals of the forest for his companions and wait for it, his face looks like your own yes you could do all that and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is but this is npr